Hello friends, and welcome to The Final Threshold, a voice of those crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and to make His pathway straight. Here at The Final Threshold, we proclaim the true message of the kingdom in preparation for Messiah's second coming events. My name is Chadwick Harvey, and I welcome you. Friends, today we have a very special guest and dear friend of mine, Dr. Dean Spitzer, who is a Jewish believer and prominent leadership expert and Bible teacher. We will be discussing the imperative topic of anti-Semitism. As we witness the rise of anti-Semitism across the world, including America, it is paramount for the Gentile church to understand the genesis of anti-Semitism and the dark history of it so that we can stand with our Jewish brethren as we enter into these perilous times. We will be discussing a variety of points on this important topic, so sit back and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dean Spitzer. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great, Chad. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. You're very welcome. We're very excited to have you on on such an important topic, uh, the anti-Semitism. And uh, what better way uh, to speak about it than uh, a, a Jewish believer and also a Gentile believer coming together as one new body is one new man. And I'd like to begin uh, by, could you define the term anti-Semitism and where in the Holy Bible uh, we can see the genesis of it? Sure. Um Anti-Semitism is actually hatred and discrimination towards Jewish people. But interestingly enough, the term Semite actually refers to a member of any of the various ancient and modern peoples originating in Southwestern Asia, including the Phoenicians, the Hebrews, and the Arabs. So the Arabs are Semites, but the term anti-Semitism applies only to Jews. A lot of people, they don't understand the uh, Semitic languages and things like that, the people and everything. So we really appreciate you uh, defining that for us. And where in the Holy Bible can we see the genesis uh, of anti-Semitism right out of the gate? Yeah, well, right out of the gate. You're right. <laughs> so let me start by explaining the roots of anti-Semitism, which began actually in the Garden of Eden, right? As you say, right out of the gate. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, some people think that the woman referred to was Eve, but Eve didn't have an enmity relationship with the serpent or Satan. But throughout her long history, from Egypt to the present day, Israel has experienced relentless satanic enmity from all sides. When you think of the millennia of anti-Semitic hatred of Jews that has been perpetrated by so many nations all over the world, you know, things like Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, Imperial Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the Spanish expulsions, the Russian pogroms, the French Dreyfus Affair, Nazis, and of course the Holocaust, 
extreme Islamic terrorism against Israel, to name just a few, and we'll be going over those in much more depth. But one can see a diabolical enmity directed against Israel. For sure, the woman, Israel, has experienced extreme enmity throughout recorded history. Uh, absolutely. And it's such a great point because, as you know, um, the end will be declared from the beginning. And so we have to, to understand the end. We have to understand the beginning. And when we look at Genesis 3.15 with the woman, and you're exactly correct, it's mentioning Israel, the one who birthed the male child, the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And then when we uh, turn to Revelations 12, it brings it on home, if you will, for us, that when Satan is cast out from heaven after the great conflict, if you will, in heaven the last three and a half years, he's cast out in Revelation 12, so to speak, and uh, we can see that he makes enmity between, uh, he goes after the woman, which is the one who gave birth to the male child. So to your point, that is Israel. So we see from the beginning in Genesis, it brings it on home to Revelation 12 at the end of the uh, age, so to speak, right before Jesus returns the last three and a half years, we see him really go after uh, Israel, uh, uh, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, and then also he'll go after the offspring, as it's mentioned, in which are the Gentiles as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that because we can see it in the beginning, right out of the gate, as we've been speaking of, and then also at the end of the age before our Lord returns. Yeah, before the Messiah came, uh, Satan did everything he could to prevent the Messiah from coming. And then during the Messiah's time on earth, you know, Jesus's human man of incarnation, uh, of course, he got Jesus to try to refute and, uh, and uh, you know, his, his mission. And then after Jesus, you know, was victorious, he's done everything he could to punish Israel for birthing Jesus. But Jewish persecution dates way back as early as the 5th century BC in Persia. And we're all familiar with the biblical account of the Purim story in the book of Esther, where all Jews in the kingdom were targeted for annihilation because one Jewish official, Mordecai, refused to bow down to the top aide of the king, Haman. And you know, one of the things that's interesting is when Jewish people celebrate Purim and the name Haman is mentioned, they all go, boo. <laughs> but that almost puts a, uh, a tries to put a humorous spin on something that is not humorous at all because anti-Semitism is no joke. Ironically, early Christianity, which was birthed from Judaism, became vehemently anti-Jewish. Christianity is basically a sect of Judaism. But it's interesting to note that the scripture declares in Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, that spiritually speaking, when you receive the Lord, you become a Jew. So you are a Jew. Spiritually, you are a Jew, Chad. And during the early years, the, the church was predominantly Jewish. In fact, Pentecost, which many people point to as the initiation of the church, was the Jewish festival of Shavuot, and all the participants were Jewish. And one can say, as Edith Schaefer did in the title of her book, Christianity is Jewish. 
Amen. It's such an important uh, point that you made with that, because uh, as you know, uh, some of my ministry, we speak about the everlasting covenants and how uh, Jesus did not come to start a new uh, sect. He came to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. And I'm glad you mentioned that because some of the listeners might say, what? Uh, When you believe in Jesus, you become a Jew spiritually. uh, You do, as you mentioned, it goes back into the everlasting covenants. And if I may take a quick summary of those, uh, because it goes on what you've mentioned in Genesis 3. 315 about the seed. We're talking about the seed of the woman, which is the same seed of the Abrahamic covenant, which is fulfilled by Jesus when he returns over the promised land of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the Davidic covenant is an extension upon that, that he will rule over the children of Israel, the Jewish people, over the promised land of the Abrahamic covenant as he sits on David's everlasting throne. And then the new covenants when uh, the corporate, the nation of Israel will accept Jesus as their Messiah. He will be their God, and that will be the new covenant. So these covenants are very important for our theology because it goes into the topic of anti-Semitism, replacement theology, if we don't understand the seed of Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the Abrahamic covenant that will become the king of the Davidic covenant and the Messiah over the children of Israel in the new covenant over the promised land, and that will obviously be fulfilled at uh, Jesus' second coming and throughout his uh, millennial kingdom. So I wanted to bring that to light. And for Gentiles, uh, we have to understand that we're grafted into those covenants. You know, Romans 11 talks about us being grafted in. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 speaks about we're in the commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer Gentiles. We're in the commonwealth, just like uh, Dr. Spitzer, uh, you have said. And then Galatians three twenty six through 29 says that if we are a seed of Christ, we're a seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise, which is the Abrahamic covenant. So uh, it goes on to the point of what you're mentioning, that we do become uh, uh, Jewish people, uh, spiritually, Israel, uh, once we uh, accept Jesus as our Messiah. Good. Thank you. Yeah, historians tend to agree that the real break between Judaism and Christianity followed the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., and the subsequent exile of Jews. In the aftermath of this devastating defeat, which was interpreted by both Jews and Christians as a sign of divine punishment, anti-Jewish beliefs and behaviors increased exponentially. Furthermore, the Gospels were commonly interpreted as diminishing Roman responsibility for the death of Christ and expressing Jewish culpability for it. So throughout history, Jews were depicted as killers of the Son of God, who just happened to be at least half Jewish. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of the points that I when believe when I hear other uh, believers that are Gentile born, you know, mention this that you know that the Jewish people killed Jesus. You know, it's just uh, ignorance of the scriptures when it all comes down to it, and then also that we have to understand that we all put uh, Jesus on the cross. You know, every one of us who has ever lived, uh, he died for all of our sins. So it's really just an ignorance towards the scriptures. And uh, this great divide that you're talking about that happened, you know, around that time, even in the third John, we can see uh, the apostle John was not welcomed into a Gentile church. So we're seeing this split, this anti-Semitism, this replacement theology occur at an early age. Yep. Well, Christianity grew 
from approximately 500 followers after Jesus's resurrection to a million in the year uh, 250 AD, and then to 34 million in the year 315 AD. The Apostle Paul had jump-started the growth of Christianity with his amazingly successful ministry to the Gentiles. But the biggest growth occurred when Christianity was adopted as the state religion of the Roman Empire. From its Jewish roots, Christianity has become a virtually 100% Gentile religion, which is, of course, not what God intended, but he worked it out for, for good. Uh, the disregard for the Jewish roots of Christianity began in the second century, then after some of the most severe persecution in the 300-year history of the church, the fourth century conversions of, of Roman Emperor Constantine and the others around Constantine eventually led to the greatest disconnect from the church's Hebraic roots. The seed of influence shifted then from Jerusalem to Gentile Rome and the Roman worldview forever changed Christianity both in form and substance. As Christianity was legitimatized in the Western world, elaborate church buildings were erected, and we see those all over the world, you know, and especially in Rome uh, and France, formalizing this new style of architecture and worship. So everything had changed from, their, from the Jewish roots. Many other changes were made, including prohibiting the observing of Jewish biblical feasts. The Sabbath was changed to Sunday. The celebration of Easter was separated from the Jewish Passover, which it was you know, linked to. And the Council of Nicaea proclaimed, shockingly enough, it is unbecoming beyond measure that on this holiest of festivals, Easter, we should follow the customs of the Jews. So henceforth, let us have nothing in common with this odious people. This is so uh, important for all of us to understand the, uh, the division that this has caused uh, at an early uh, age in the church's history, if you will, so to speak. And it only escalated as time has gone by, like you're talking about with the Council of uh, Nicaea at 325 AD, that really, in my opinion, I mean, people say replacement theology is just the church replacing Israel. I would go even further to say that it was everything was replaced, including God's holy festivals, also the Shabbat, the Sabbath, as you've mentioned as well. So we're starting to see, as you're mentioning throughout history, as we bring it up to date, uh, the escalation of the anti-Semitism, uh, how it grows and how it infests into uh, our theology, so to speak. So I'm so happy that you mentioned that because you're seeing this big division that has occurred ever since uh, AD 70. Yeah, and anti-Semitism really derived from anti-Jewish feelings in the Christian church. So Christianity was intent on replacing Judaism by making its own particular message universal. The New Testament was seen as fulfilling the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and Christians were proclaiming themselves as the new Israel, both in flesh and in spirit. 
as Christianity spread in the first centuries AD, most Jews continued to reject the Christian religion because it had become so gentilized and they really had nothing in common with it. As a consequence, by the fourth century, Christians tended to regard Jews as an alien people who because of their repudiation of Christ and his church were condemned to protect perpetual exile and migration, a belief best illustrated in the legend that was used of the wandering Jew, you know, that the Jew was just a wandering nomadic people that didn't have a home. And that was part of the reason why, you know, the Jews really until recent times were not allowed back into Israel. When the Christian church became dominant in the Roman Empire, its leaders inspired many laws of the Roman Empire emperors designed to segregate Jews and curtail their freedoms when they appeared to threaten Christian religious domination. As a consequence, Jews were increasingly marginalized by European society, and that's where most of the Jews were at that time in, in Europe. Religious differences between Jews and Christians throughout time paved the path of continual Jewish persecution that culminated in the most virulent strain of anti-Semitism in the Nazi era. Because of these religious differences, Jews were an easy scapegoat throughout history. It's interesting when we look at, it, you know, how this just evolved, you know, from A.D. 70 and on forward to 325 A.D., on forward into Europe. Uh, during this time, as we bring it up to date, it's, it's just totally amazing that the theology that uh, one could say, some of the theology that went into Nazi Germany and all of these things with Hitler came from uh, the Christian church or the right. European church. And, and that's really says a lot about the theology behind uh, what was going on at that time, because it was totally anti-Semitism uh, uh, or anti-Semitic and also against the Jewish people, against God's you know festivals and things like that and the S Sabbath, etc. So uh, a lot of people don't put those two together. But uh, some of the doctrine that came from the Nazi Germany was because of the Christian church's replacement theology attitude. Yeah, that's a great point, Chad. And a lot of people don't realize how early that anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish feelings uh, started happening and that it, most of it came from the church itself. But let's talk about some of the major anti-Semitic attacks throughout history. You know, one of the, the, one of the first major attacks were the Crusades that although they were primarily military operations in the 13th century to liberate Jerusalem from Muslim control, they were used to kill many Jews as the Crusaders crossed Europe en route to the Holy Land because they had been inculcated in this view that the Jews were evil and were the Christ killers. And so if they wanted to get rid of the Muslims, they had to kill the Jews in the process. In the Rhine Valley alone, during this, the Crusades, about 12,000 Jews were killed in that first crusade alone, not to mention the other crusades. 
Then what is called the Inquisition, which many of us are quite familiar, was actually a series of anti-Semitic events that lasted roughly 700 years. The official start usually is given as 1231 when the Pope appointed the first inquisitors of heretical depravity. So that's what they were doing. They were trying to get rid of the Jewish people who they viewed as depraved heretics. The most prominent of the inquisitions was the Spanish Inquisition, which lasted from 1478 to 1834. And it was a judicial institution, so it was actually a court ostensibly established to combat heresy in Spain. In practice, though, it served to consolidate power in the monarchy of the newly unified Spanish kingdom. But it achieved that end through brutal methods, mainly anti-Jewish methods. During the Spanish Inquisition, Jews were given the choice of being baptized as Christians or being banished from Spain. In 1492, you know, that famous year of the discovery of America, 300,000 Jews left Spain as paupers. Others converted to Christianity, but often continued Jewish observance in secret. During this period, Jewish people were exiled from Spain, Sicily, Lithuania, and Portugal. More than 160,000 Jews were expelled from Spain, and there were thousands of executions. And if you visit Spain today, you will find that virtually none of the centers that were so prominent where Jews lived and, and thrived exist. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, there's no Jewish uh, uh, monuments or Jewish people who live there anymore. Uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with the Spanish Inquisition. I wrote about it in my second book of God's Fishermen, Satan's Hunters. It was one of the key points in the book of the transition. And I loved how under the persecution that the Jewish people were under, God did uh, prevail with a refuge, that safe refuge of America, you know, eventually. And um, and it was totally amazing how that worked with Christopher Columbus and how uh, I believe that he sailed the ocean blue with uh, some of the Jewish people. And we become, America has become the safest refuge uh, for the Jewish people in history, in my, in my personal opinion. So uh, we have to understand is what happened in Spain was a part of the anti a Semitic attitude of the church at that time. And uh, what was so amazing is since that time, Spain has been a shell of once the dominant empire it was because of, I believe, Genesis 12, 3, that blessing or that curse on how you treat his people. And it goes back into mention uh, with the empires you mentioned before, with Assyria or Egypt or Babylon or Germany or whoever, the Romans. Uh, look at all of those empires and all of those empires have fallen but the Jewish people are still here and the promised land is still here. So hallelujah and praise God for his everlasting covenants. Right. And the Jewish people are thriving. You know, it's interesting that, you know, those who study the history of Spain and Portugal see that uh, after the Inquisition successfully got rid of the Jewish populations, their economies went right down the tubes. And so you know, obviously the Jewish people were critical to uh, economic success of co the countries in which they lived. 
which was one of the sources of jealousy that caused, you know, it kind of reinforced the anti-Semitism because the Jews were so successful, but they didn't realize that it was the Jewish success that made those countries successful. Now, the Roman Inquisition uh, was established in 1542 and staffed by cardinals and other papal officials with the role of defending the integrity of the Catholic Church. And so Roman Catholicism was dedicated to getting rid of that quote unquote negative Jewish influence. So Jews in that were given the choice of either leaving uh, Rome or Italy or converting to Christianity, uh, Jewish children over six years of age were taken from their parents and given non-Jewish upbringings. Then in the 14th century, the great plagues of Europe not only took the lives of many Europeans, but it fueled persecution of the Jews for centuries to come because Jews were a convenient scapegoat for everything that went wrong, and they were actually blamed for poisoning wells and causing the disease. This belief spread anti-Semitism, and the Jews were tortured and slaughtered across Europe from Spain to Poland. Riots against the Jews began all over Europe, and many rulers ordered the arrest of Jews. This anti-Semitism was fueled by, as most anti-Semitism, by ignorance, fear, and jealousy. It was also seen as a way of absolving the debts of powerful individuals within Christian communities to the Jewish moneylenders. <laughs> the pogroms were anti-Jewish riots and massacres in the Russian Empire in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, pogrom is actually a Russian word meaning to wreak havoc or to demolish violently. And clearly that's what they did. The first pogrom was anti-Jewish rioting in Odessa in the Ukraine in 1821. And then it swept throughout Ukraine and Southern Russia from 1881 to 1884, following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II during the Civil War the uh, 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, Ukrainian nationalists engaged in a pogrom of killing tens of thousands of Jews between 1918 and 1920. Other pogroms occurred throughout Russia in 1941, instigated by the German policy of systematically eliminating Jews. So, you know, there, what happened in Nazi Germany was also beginning to happen in Russia as well. Then from a theological standpoint, from St. Augustine in the fourth century to Martin Luther in the 16th century, some of the most influential Christian theologians railed against the Jewish people and criticized them for being rebels against God and murderers of the Lord, companions of the devil, and a race of vipers. Uh, Martin Luther, oh, St. Augustine wrote, uh, the true image of the Hebrew is Judas Iscariot, who sells the Lord for silver. The Jew can never understand the scriptures and forever will bear the guilt for the death of Jesus. That's what St. Augustine 
you know, one of the heroes of Christianity said. But even more shocking is what Martin Luther wrote, that Christians should deal with this rejected and condemned people by seven points. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursings, and blasphemies are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. And seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. But if they are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, children, servants, cattle, etc., then let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, etc., then reject them from, eject them forever from the country. So that's what Martin Luther, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation said. Is that horrible? Is that shocking? Well, I'm so glad that you brought this to uh, the forefront because that's what I tell people that I could give you a quote and, and not tell you who it's from. And you would think it's from Adolf Hitler, but it's actually from Martin Luther, who some of the Protestants really elevate into this, you know, whatever it may be, the father of Protestantism, as you're saying. But whenever I look at this, then uh, the scriptures that come to mind, I guess these gentlemen never read those, is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 59 and 60, which clearly says that the new covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we're Gentiles grafted into that. So I'm not sure where their theology came from, but it's certainly I would not want to stand before the king of the Jews, okay, the Jewish Messiah, and have to answer for some of these uh, quotes that uh, that you've read. So that's my personal opinion is um, I think this is despicable. And uh, this is where some of the uh, anti-Semitic um, anti-Semitism comes within the church. I think it comes from uh, the, if you will, quote unquote, fathers, uh, John Wesley, Martin Luther, St. Augustine, you've, we've read what you've quoted there as well. So I think we have to be very careful because it's infiltrated our churches uh, from a very early stage, you know, with Catholicism and then on forward into the Protestant church. And we have absolutely, uh, the church itself has absolutely forgotten uh, their Jewish roots and, and the covenants. And, and that's why I'm so happy that you mentioned Genesis 3.15, because that does go into the covenants that we mentioned, the Abrahamic Davidic new covenant. He is 
that seed. And without the understanding of the covenants, then you get into these kind of things with replacement theology and cherry picking certain scriptures uh, when he's chastising the Jewish people. And uh, my response also would be Matthew 25. You know, when he says, my brethren, he's speaking about the Jewish people, you know, at the end of the age. That's uh, um, Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. Yeah. He's speaking about his people at the end of the age. And certainly we want to stand with our brethren because they are his brethren, uh, the Jewish people. Yeah. Now to, to be uh, charitable to Martin Luther at this time, you know, Martin Luther was under a lot of pressure himself and uh, you know, he was kind of looking for people to lash out on. But just because you're in a bad mood, doesn't mean that you should, uh, you know, that's not just a justification for this kind of heinous uh, talk and, and action. But, you know, throughout history, when the Jews were needed, they were tolerated, living as they did on the margins of society. Before the mass expulsions, Jewish philosophers, physicians, business people, and writers were among the leaders of a rich and culturally diverse uh, and in intellectual Europe. But still underneath all that, the idea that Jews were evil still persisted. The widespread economic and political dislocations caused by World War I intensified anti-Semitism and the demonization of Jews in Europe. So when things got bad, for the people of Europe, things got worse for the Jews. Um, even in North America during the 1920s, anti-Semitism became widespread and Jews were blamed for the depression. Many universities imposed quotas on Jewish students. Jews were also uh, barred from country clubs. Many neighborhoods were restricted against Jewish uh, residents. Um, this was even true when I was a child in New York. Jews could not join Christian clubs. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I experienced, even though I went to a mixed schools in, in New York, uh, I never uh, socialized with Gentiles. Gentiles were like aliens from another planet. And I'm sure for them, uh, Jewish people were like aliens from another planet. There was no... Uh, social interaction between us, which was very strange, and yet we would go to school together. But of course, you know, the Holocaust was the ultimate and greatest anti-Semitic event ever, with its murder of nearly six million Jews. It was Satan's greatest victory over God's chosen people. And and, you know, what you can see from what we've said so far is you can see how this hatred built up. And you mentioned it, Chad, that, uh, you know, that not that the Nazis and Hitler got a lot of their theology from the early Christian church. And uh, there's not enough time to describe the horrendousness of what happened during the Nazi period of human history. But, you know, we're all pretty much familiar with the genocide that occurred in Nazi concentration camps, including Auschwitz, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, and Dachau. Other countries collaborated with the Nazis. For instance, in France, the Vichy government 
deported over 76,000 Jews to Nazi death camps. Only about 2,500 of those were known to have survived. Wow, uh, totally, it's just totally sad to me. And uh, I'd like to uh, share a personal story real quick. Uh, I think I've told you in private uh, before, maybe not, that uh, I went to school in Europe in Innsbruck, Austria, and I took a history class. Well, uh, we, there was two field two field trips uh, that we were going to go on that day, or or some people people were going to go on one field trip, and then another was going to go to another place. Well, I got on the wrong bus. Okay, I was supposed to go to the other field trip, but I got on the wrong bus. And we went to Dachau, you know, so uh, I'm very familiar with that. And and I know it was an experience that I'll never forget. You know, obviously I have photos and but just the feeling that I'll always remember there is just uh, I just felt a lot of death there. I felt a lot of death and a lot of evil there uh, just from my own uh, personal experience of walking the grounds and et cetera. So uh, I think it was just one of those divine appointments that I was supposed to be somewhere else on the field trip. But I guess, you know, God wanted me there for I guess what I. I'm doing right now uh, with ministry, etc. And it's just very important for the believers to understand, Gentile believers to understand that we have to have our theology correct, because if not, then things like what we've just mentioned, that that's what happens. And they use this uh, other theology, this anti-Semitism and this behavior that is basically demonic and satanic uh, to come across the Jewish people in genocide. So I wanted to share that story that it was just a real moving experience that I'll never forget, you know, uh, going to Dachau and walking the grounds uh, of uh, Dachau. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the, uh, the, the most interesting uh, situations is the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, who actually helped liberate, Auschwitz as part of the Allied Army, but he engaged himself in a purge of Jews in the Soviet Union that was only halted by his death in 1953, or it would have continued. Soviet opposition to the State of Israel and the, the Six-Day War in 1967 and reaction to attempts of, by Soviet Jews to immigrate to Israel was linked to a new wave of Russian anti-Semitism. There was also anti-Jewish purges in Poland in the late 1950s and in 1960s. So we're getting to, to modern times now. Of course, the large number of Jews who immigrated to Palestine and the, were part of the formation of the State of Israel in the formerly Arab region aroused new currents of hostility throughout the Arab world. This turned into decades of warfare and terrorism in the Middle East. Although most of the attacks were against Israel rather than individual Jews, the result was the adoption of many anti-Jewish measures in Muslim countries throughout the Middle East. Anti-Semitism is actually the world's longest lasting form of hatred. It's lasted for thousands of years. And there's an amazing book entitled The Anguish of the Jews, written by a Catholic priest, which chronicles hundreds of major anti-Semitic events over 23 centuries. It truly makes one astounded that this amount of evil could ever exist 
Most people have no idea how extensive anti-Semitism has been throughout the ages. And I've just been given, giving you just a, a small sample of what's been happening over the years. France's 475,000 Jews represent less than 1% of the country's population. Yet last year, according to the French Interior Ministry, 51% of all racist attacks were targeted against Jews. The statistics in other countries, including Great Britain, are similarly dismal. Jews in Europe continue to be murdered, raped, beaten, stalked, chased, harassed, spat on, and insulted for being Jewish. In Greece, a recent survey found that 69% of adults hold anti-Semitic views. That's in Greece. 69%. Clearly, Jews are under increased threat in Europe and beyond. But Europe really is the epicenter of anti-Semitism these days. Um, and it's being revitalized by nationalistic movements and the rapid increase in Muslim integration, immigration, excuse me. According to the Pew Research Center, the Muslim population in Europe, excluding Turkey, was about 30 million in 1990, 44 million in 2010, and is expected to increase to almost 60 million in 2030. The Muslim share of the population increased from 4% in 1990 to 6% in 2010, and is expected to reach 8% in 2030. So clearly, that is a big risk. Absolutely. And I'm so happy you mentioned this because uh, it does uh, correlate with uh, my second book, God's Fishmen, Satan's Hunters, and and what happened in 2014 and 2015 with the Islamic invasion, as I call it. And I want to be very clear that uh, the mo most Muslim people that went over there were looking for a, a pure place for refuge. They really were. But with that comes the radicals and comes the terrorists, etc. And when we look at the terrorism that occurred in 2014 and 2015 up to today, Today, uh, there's no. It's, it's not by coincidence that it's because of uh, the Muslim extremists uh, that have gone over there and really have just wanted to take over the country. You look at London. You look at uh, France in 2014 with the terrorist attacks. You look at all of Sweden, Denmark. Everywhere you look uh, in Europe, you know, it's really trying to change uh, for the worse with the Islamic invasion. And I want to be very clear. I love the Muslim people, every one of them, but I am against the Islamic doctrine of, uh, personally. So I wanted to make that clear, but it, it, you'll see the increase of violence, the increase of anti-Semitism, the terrorism because of this and also because of that old ghost of replacement theology right. uh, that Europe has had in uh, the Nazi Germany days, etc. With both of those combination, it's a very, very sick potion uh, for the Jewish people in Europe. Yeah, and what makes this era of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence particularly problematical is that there's the merger of the traditional Christian anti-Semitism with the Muslim Judeophobia, you know, anti-Jewish and anti-Israel feelings. And so we have the merger or the synergy of those uh, impacts. So violence against Jews in Western Europe today, according to those who track it, appears to come mainly from Muslims 
who in France, the epicenter of Europe's anti or Jewish crisis, outnumbered Jews 10 to 1. So there's 10 Arabs or Muslims for every Jew. And what makes this so problematical is that although most of the Christians don't openly uh, support it, they don't do much to deal with the, the situation. And they're quite intimidated actually by the Arabs who are a very strong political block in, in many countries, especially in France. There's a general belief because of the success of the Jewish people that the Jews have too much power everywhere. So a lot of this is just jealousy towards Jews. Again, that's fomenting this hatred. Uh, in much of Europe, Jewish children are afraid to wear kippahs, you know, those uh, yarmulkes on their, that the, the men wear on their heads. They won't wear them in the streets of Paris, Budapest, and London. And there's the ransacking of Jewish stores, attacks on synagogues, the des desecration of Jewish cemeteries, and violent attacks targeting individual Jews. While anti-Semitism exists in the United States, it's not nearly as uh, widespread as in Europe. But at the, interestingly, at the time of 9-11, some attributed the attack to the Jews' greed and the Jews turning New York into a symbol of global capitalism. And, you know, you heard about, you know, all the Jews that were blamed for, you know, the... Uh, the bank and, and brokerage failures and the monetary collapse. So if anything can be blamed on Jews, it will be. Now, author uh, Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic said something that uh, I want to read because I think he said it very well. He said, I am predisposed to believe that there is no great future for the Jews in Europe because evidence to support this belief is accumulating so quickly. But I am also predisposed to think this because I am an American Jew, which is to say a person who exists because his European ancestors made a run for it when they could. And that's why in Europe, the rabbis actually are telling Jewish people to keep a suitcase packed so that they can run when things get really, really bad. That's incredible. You know, it goes back into 2014, 2015. And uh, some of the quotes I put in my book from even Netanyahu and even the uh, defense minister, I can't remember his name currently right now, but they basically called the people to make Alia, you know, the return back uh, home during that time of 2014, 2015, because the terror attacks that were in France and I think it was uh, Spain. And uh, it was just, it really has just changed over there with Europe and, and Netanyahu himself, the prime minister, uh, called them back prophetically. It goes back, he's a fisherman calling his people back home. It goes back into the prophecy of calling the Jewish people back home. And and so I, I do agree with you that Europe will only get worse uh, for uh, the Jewish people, unfortunately, uh, because of the things that we've mentioned with the Islamic invasion and with also the old ghost that um, has started to rise over there again. And then 
hopefully uh, America will still be the light uh, and the safest refuge for the Jewish people, even though we're starting to see a little bit of a ramping up of anti-Semitism, even in America, you know, which is sad uh, to see. But uh, we can clearly see that. But I wanted to also say that the Alia applications, which is the return of the Jewish people back to Israel, uh, since the coronavirus has started, or since it's come about, they're 300% up around the world and 100% up even in America. So we're starting to see, you know, the Jewish people wanting to return uh, back home because of certain things. And um, so that's why we need to keep America in prayer and our president and our Congress, because we're starting to see America shift towards um, anti-Semitic behavior. Yeah, I'm surprised that the Jews haven't been blamed for the coronavirus. I guess it's because Trump is so intent on blaming it on China. (laughs) <laughs> that's good uh, you know this is the next thing is really interesting because uh, Philip Perlmutter uh, an author has conceptualized five degrees of anti-Semitism and I think uh, the listeners will find it very interesting how uh, anti-Semitism is not monolithic it has different levels different types the first degree of anti-Semitism is, includes persons, groups, organizations, or governments who in thought, word, and deed attack or reflect animosity towards Jews as a group or individuals. This is extreme anti-Semitism and, you know, is responsible for so much of the of the killing and persecution that existed throughout the ages. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have too much of first degree anti-Semitism these days. Second degree anti-Semitism it describes anti-Jewish patterns of hostility that lack premeditation and direct physical violence. This category encompasses people, groups, religions, and governments that propound, applaud, and or distribute anti-Semitic literature, teach and preach the sinfulness of the Jews, especially in killing Jesus, uh, contribute funds to hate organizations, mail threatening letters to Jewish businessmen, politicians, uh, teachers, uh, or neighbors, deny the Holocaust ever occurred, and or write anti-Semitic literature. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that on the internet. You know, the social media, you know, has become a haven for hate and prejudice. The third degree of anti-Semitism includes anti-Semitic acts uh, that reflect anti-Jewish animosity, which is basically emotional, verbal, limited in time and situation, and usually expressed among friends, family, and colleagues. Third degree anti-Semites do not like Jews as neighbors, work associates, family members, or political candidates. They're often very savvy people who use and hide behind social media to promote their views and employ coded messages and dog whistles. You know, this is kind of hidden anti-Semitism. And these are, you know, people who make anti-Semitic comments that, you know, even though, you know, like I jewed them down, um, you know, rather than, you know, which reflect a deeper anti-Semitism. You know, and talk about you know the successful Jews that ran the 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 other people out of business and stuff like that. 
it's it's very insidious. The fourth degree of anti-Semitism uh, is it's people who hold positive and negative views of Jews, liking and disliking, accepting and rejecting, admiring and fearing them. In other words, it's it's an ambivalent view. There are people who like their Jews and their Jew stores, but not those New York Jews. So, you know, it's very prejudicial, that fourth degree of anti-Semitism. These are often Christians who love Jewish patriarchs and prophets, you know, and they think the Old Testament is wonderful, but not contemporary Jews. And people who admire the, a Jewish doctor, but dread a Jewish landlord. Uh, <laughs> I've heard many people say, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I love Jews, but I sure hope my doctor isn't Jewish. <laughs> Actually, the Jewish doctors are pretty darn good. Then the, I wish my, I hope mine is a Jewish yeah, doctor, but go ahead. The fifth degree of anti-Semitism is the least harmful and the most common. It includes anti-Semitic verbal slips, references, stereotypes, and observations that are incidental to their overall character. That's probably where, you know, Jewing people down more comes in in the fifth degree anti-Semitism, reflecting an insensitivity, ignorance, momentary anger, or thoughtless conformity with social upbringing, religious education, or uh, societal beliefs. So again, these are our anti-Semitic views that are so much a part of our culture that people aren't even aware of them. You know, we might call them accidental anti-Semites, people who have integrated and absorbed prejudicial attitudes to the point that they're often unaware that their views are anti-Semitic. But unfortunately, you know, it's still anti-Semitism. And even if it doesn't directly attack Jews, it can foster the um, uh, the toleration of uh, anti-Jewish uh, ac activities. And one of the reasons perhaps why governments don't do very much about them is because of this fourth and fifth degree anti-Semitism. Now, many of the lesser forms of anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism are actually systems or thoughts that people can use to explain many of the challenges that they face, even when there are no Jews around. Wow. So interesting. And I'm so glad that you brought this to the forefront, you know, that all of these degrees uh, that you've mentioned, I've never uh, heard anyone, you know, lay it out like this, you know, like you have. And um, it's very paramount for us to understand these things because we've all, I know personally, you know, uh, growing up, you know, when college or even in the workplace, I do real estate for a living and you come across different people and you hear these certain quips about the Jewish people, like you just said, Jew somebody down and all of these things. And you just have to uh, get those people away from you. You know, you don't want to have anything to do with that. I certainly certainly don't want to have anything to do with it towards anyone, you know, not just the Jewish people, but towards any uh, race or nationality or any people. I don't want to have anything to do with any kind of hatred. And that's the first uh, thing that we're taught is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and then love our neighbor. And that's my cry out to the Gentile church is we have to love our neighbor, which includes the Jewish people. Again, he's the Jewish Messiah. I would not want to have to stand in front of uh, the Jewish Messiah and answer for being anti-Semitic towards his brethren. You know, so I'm so happy that you brought these degrees out because it's very paramount for us to understand that we don't want to have anything to do with this uh, whatsoever from the obviously the first 
first degree uh, to obviously the fifth degree as well. I don't want to have any part of any of that. So I'm so happy that you brought these degrees up because it's very paramount for us to understand. Yeah, and uh, as we look at what's happening in the world today, we can see that a lot of fourth and fifth degree anti-Semitism may eventually uh, become third degree and second degree and unfortunately first degree anti-Semitism as the world becomes more threatened, Jews increasingly become scapegoats. Uh, and I'm really concerned about, you know, a lot of what's happening in China, the, not only the anti-Christian uh, emphasis, but also there's anti-Jewish emphasis and in Russia and the, closer to home, you know, in, there's still very strong uh, white nationalism. And remember, that's how Nazism started with white nationalism. And, uh, you know, Jewish people have never been considered really part of the, uh, the white race. You know, they're always been considered different. But I keep telling people, despite all that's happening in the world, as John 14, 1 says, let not your heart be troubled. Remember, the Lord said that to the disciples. We got to remember that God is in control and that his plan will be played out perfectly. And so I just advocate that we all pray for the Jewish people. You know, we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but the peace in Jerusalem will not come except for the false peace treaty of the Antichrist until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, ruling from the Jewish city, Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. I couldn't have said it any better. And it goes back uh, to Genesis 3.15, you know, that Satan will create enmity between, or there's going to be enmity between Satan and the Jewish people. And that will go like we've discussed before uh, into the last three and a half years of the age when he's cast down and then he comes after the woman, Israel, the Jewish people, and then he makes war with the offspring uh, at that time as well. Dr. Spitzer, we really appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining us and explaining uh, the history of anti-Semitism and what to watch out for as we go into the future. And friends, it's very important to have our theology correct. It's very important to understand Genesis 3.15, where it begins, and then it goes to the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant, which has not been completely fulfilled yet. They will be completely fulfilled when Jesus returns. He is the seed of uh, Genesis 3.15 that will crush Satan's head and that will fulfill the seed of the Abrahamic covenant over the promised land as the king of the Davidic covenant over the Jewish people over the, in the promised land. And obviously he will be their Messiah and they will be his God or they will be his people. He will be their God at that time. Read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 59 and 60, and then read Romans 9 through 11, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, and also Galatians 3, 20, uh, five, uh, 26 through 29. So it's very important, my friends, to have our theology correct so we can stand with our Jewish brethren. Uh, Dr. Spitzer is a Messianic Jew. He's a Jewish believer. I am a born Gentile, but we're coming together as one to come across and come against 
uh, the anti-Semitic behavior uh, that is occurring not only in Europe, but you're starting to see it manifest in America as well. So friends, we hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, please reach out with any questions or concerns. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. And until next time, my name is Chad McCarvey, and you've reached the final threshold.